Welcome to the Lost and Transformation podcast series dedicated to the complex world of digital transformation. We feature guests from large corporations, startups, consultancies, and more to shed light on the success factors around innovation, transformation, and adjacent topics. We share firsthand insights and inspiration from experts for all the entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, and anyone curious about digital transformation. Coming up is your host, Sebastian Müller, co-founder and COO of Ming Labs, with our guest for today, Joachim van Dele. Joachim is the co-founder of Future Labs, a venture builder that uses assets and capabilities of leading corporations to build transformational tech companies. He has been creating businesses for almost two decades in finance, technology, and innovation. Equipped with experience as a founder, operator, and investor, he helped companies grow into new fields and geographies. He also taught at INSEAD and directs their startup bootcamp. We hope you enjoy the conversation and look forward to your feedback. Hello, Joachim. Thank you for taking the time to be on our podcast today. Um, we'll oh, be cool. speaking uh, quite a bit about uh, corporate venture building mm -hmm. and uh, what the whole startup game also means for, for big corporations. But before we dive into that, maybe let's start by talking about you a little bit um, and about your background. What, what have you been doing so far and how have you come to be interested in corporate venture building? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, thank you very much for the invitation. My true pleasure to, uh, to be here. Well, it's, it's almost two decades that I'm professionally active and, and I started my career on the corporate side. I'm a, I'm a trained financial risk manager and a bit of a quant. So I used to do things that we call now big data and advanced analytics. But back in the days, that was just called statistics and database management, really. So I did a lot of prediction modeling uh, for financial institutions and then moved on to build, um, as one of the partners, a consultancy working for banks and insurance companies. That really was a transition from looking at the risk side, all the things that can go wrong, to the other side of the uh, distribution, if you want, which is what can go right and how do we optimize for that? You know, right. how can we model for extreme success and basically beat the odds against which any entrepreneur needs to go? Yeah. So that was kind of the transition that I went through in, in the first 10 years of my career. Uh, we built that to be a, a nice European-wide uh, consultancy business. I did my exit there, went back to school, landed here in, in Singapore. And in the last 10 years, I've been more looking or continuing really on that entrepreneurial path uh, by going through a number of acquisition cycles and do uh, MBI, so management buy-ins. Mm -hmm. uh, so my model really has been one where I take a stake in a business and operate next to the founding team, take on a CEO or a managing director role, and to basically help to fast track the growth of the business or to turn around financially, strategically, but always as almost a co-founder, but a co-founder who came on uh, later on. Yeah? So yeah. That, that's really the venture building trajectory uh, as I started it. And then more recently, I um, actually went back to one of my old loves, which is corporates, you know, large organizations. And started thinking about, you know, how can I uh, and how can we, together with now my co-founder at, at Future Labs, Future Labs Ventures, how can we bring together, you know, this venture building entrepreneurial, you know, drive on the one hand with the large 
corporate assets, if you want, and, and the footprint that the large uh, incumbents have to basically innovate at scale. Yeah, so that, that has been my, uh, my journey for the last 20 years. So your most recent uh, adventure is called Future Labs. Mm -hmm. What is the big idea behind Future Labs? Mm -hmm. Look, in the last 10, 15 years, I would say, there has been a lot of attention And luckily so, but for the entrepreneur, entrepreneurship, I think, has gone through a transformation in its own right. Where 15 years ago, if you were an entrepreneur, people thought of you as, you know, an outlier or a misfit or something like that. And now, you know, there's almost a glorification of the entrepreneur. Absolutely. And VC, uh, venture capital, obviously has a big role to play there. The proliferation of technology as we know it and so on. Now, that's great. At the same time, as an entrepreneur... If you have a great idea or what you think is a great idea, you now not only compete for resources, but you compete with all the other people competing for resources. Yeah. And I mean, I make an assumption here, but if, if you kind of simplify, so there's a fight for resources uh, that entrepreneurs have, and they have the same level of access to talent, to technology, to capital and what have you. So you really need to wonder How is it that I can maintain an unfair advantage for myself as an entrepreneur? Any VC, you know, uh, they will look at what is your unfair advantage? Why is it that you can do better what you plan to do than anyone else in the market? Absolutely. And that is really where, where we think that corporations uh, can come in. Because if we can unlock the value of their assets, their resources, the capabilities as leaders in their field, then we can give those ventures, these corporate ventures, an unfair advantage, yeah? So it's essentially startups playing with bigger guns, yeah? Or with bigger resources, uh, right. if you want, or, or startups on steroids almost. So that means that we believe, you know, you have a higher probability of succeeding than you would do if, you know, you and I were to build a venture in the wild, yeah? And uh, I mean, it's not just a belief, it's actually proven that, you know, large corporations have a higher probability, better probability of um, of succeeding in building a hundred million dollar startup uh, compared to building a venture in the wild. It's one, one over eight compared to one over 500, more or less. Yeah. At the same time, big corporations are often seen as slow, as being complacent. How do you work with clients to unleash that potential and that power? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I said it's one over eight, probability of building a hundred million dollar business as a corporate. So that still means that seven out of eight, you know, uh, attempts fail. Sure. And there's, I mean, throughout practice, we've seen that there's, I would say four or five main reasons why that happens. And obviously it, it's our job, you know, to manage that and to explain that to our corporate partners. One is that I would say most obviously at the cultural level, there is a fundamental discord between the DNA of a corporate, which is built to protect itself, to defend itself, to mitigate risks as much as possible versus a startup which only has an assumption to work with who needs to take the risk and to kind of, well, try and cut through the risk as fast as possible and take some shortcuts. Um, so that's a fundamental difference in DNA and in pressure that they experience. Yeah? So, and what we see is that corporations very quickly because of the pressure, the financial pressure that they might have, you know, from their investors or, or you know, even if they're, if they're listed, for example, they get cold feet. Yeah? Yep. They try, the first attempt fails, and they say, oh, this is not a good product or this is not a good venture altogether, and we pull the plug. Yeah? 
Secondly, on the other side of the spectrum, it's a culture of, I would say, or a matter of sometimes over-investing, yeah, over-investment. Large corporations have a budgeting cycle which typically works like this. You submit a business case for three years, for five years in some cases, and you need to request budget to invest and you need to show your well, return on investment over five years, right? And, and show that you have a positive net present value. Right. Well, if you're bringing a new product to market, you don't even know what your market need is. That's obviously impossible to make that business case. Yeah. But so in some cases where the corporation, very typically through the board says, let's do this, you know, let's start a new corporate venture. They actually get a check size, which is big, yeah, which is almost too big. And because of that, they tend to overstay because there's a lot at stake, because there's a lot of money being invested. Yeah? Now, a bad venture, bad, quote unquote, in, in, backed by a VC wouldn't have such a long run, runway. Yeah? Yeah. So one of the, adding point one and two up is like one of the big challenges for a corporation, and that's where we come in, is to kind of manage, I mean, to cut early enough but not too early, right? And so managing the number of iterations you can go through, the number of pivots that you can go through, you know, managing that in a rational way is one of the, I think, big values that we bring to a corporation, yeah. Other reasons why majority of attempts in large corporations fail, corporate venturing attempts is, is you know, the, the infrastructure that they have, which is, which corporates have, is fantastic, you know, everything works, you know, there's this solid enterprise-grade software, there's departments, you know, that support everything. And it's actually usually quite effective and efficient, but these are handcuffs yeah. to a venture. Having to, you know, build a new product uh, in a cloud environment, which is controlled by, you know, your IT department is often a nightmare. Trying to recruit some people who want to take the risk early on, I mean, hire them in, in your team and have to go through HR that's not going to take you anywhere. Procurement uh, and so on. Yeah. So all these departments are there for a good reason, again, to protect you know, the cores and the big assets of the large corporation, but they don't work for a startup, uh, essentially. Another one uh, that we run into increasingly is actually incentive structures, mm-hmm. where entrepreneurs obviously have a particular risk-reward structure, in that they're happy to take the risk, they're happy to fail, but obviously when things go right, they'd like to you know, be rewarded for the risk that they took. Right. And so that means that we are looking to give our founders equity, which is in principle acceptable, I think, to a, large, a lot of large corporations. So it's interesting how very often there's an afterthought where they say, let's cap the return on that equity. And I just recently had a case where I where we spoke to one of those uh, corporates and and they said yeah but because we we I mean we couldn't explain that entrepreneur would for example make more money than our CEO does right yeah and where I understand where the comment is coming from I understand the origin of this because in a large organization you want to manage you know your HR and your talent you know in in, in quite determined you know strategic uh, strategic ways. Obviously, this kind of limitation, you know, doesn't work for, for any entrepreneur. Yeah? So kind of managing that, explaining how that would, uh, well, completely discredit in a way your attempt to, um, to build a corporate venture. That, that is essentially what we do. And the last point, which is crucial in corporate venture building, 
and that we bring to the table as uh, Future Labs Ventures is, is talent, ultimately, you know, bringing the right talent in, world-class people who are nimble, who are ready to fail, who have built businesses in the past, ideally who succeeded, but equally there's a lot of, you know, learning and failure. Yeah, and these are the kind of people that we attract in and around Future Labs and um, who ultimately go on to build these ventures, these joint ventures yeah, in partnership with, uh, with our corporate partners. So how do you find these people who are willing to come in uh, into, a, let's say, a partially corporate, partially startup type of environment together with you and build mm -hmm. these ventures, take these risks, but within more control than they might be used to? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do we find them? Through various channels. The initial entrepreneurs with whom we work, the venture founders, by the way, we call them, uh, the venture founders are very often people who sit in our network already. So people who, with whom we worked in the past, uh, who have been founders or part of an executive team in a scale-up, and who have a lot of expertise. So we typically don't work with very young founders, yeah? 15 years, 20 years of experience. And what is interesting is that around you know that level of seniority, you have a lot of people who are interested in building something big, who want to have a reward, right? But they don't necessarily seek to be 100% owner of nothing, yeah. right? Which is what you and I would get if we start a new venture somewhere in our garage, right? We would be the kings of, you know, our venture, but there's nothing inside yet. Right. And so that dynamic, I think, is very often understood by, well, by the venture founders who we bring on board, who are professionals, who have, you know, served their time in a large, you know, corporate uh, environment or in a consultancy, which is also uh, quite useful, and combine that with some entrepreneurial experience slash appetite. Yeah? And there's a surprising deep pool of these people. That doesn't mean that the pool, or we don't need to, you know, select well within that pool, but this, especially here in Singapore, quite a lot of entrepreneuring, entrepreneurial, sorry, or budding entrepreneurial talent uh, available. Yeah. So we are now moving into a more programmatic approach to identify and select uh, uh, that, uh, that talent. And we have our ways of finding the people and, you know, structuring a relationship that is healthy for, well, not just the two parties, Venture Founder and Future Labs, but the corporate partner as well. So there's, there's quite right. a lot of thought that, that goes into you know, finding the right people and then, you know, incentivizing all the parties appropriately. Yeah. How do you think in that context about uh, entrepreneurs, people that the corporate might already have and might also want to pick up certain skills that they could learn by, yeah. by going through such a journey yeah. that they would then want to place in a program like yours? Yeah. We are very open to considering entrepreneurs as venture founders for our ventures. We're looking for the best talent. So let's not discriminate. That talent might be currently, you know, working, operating within a large organization. I think it's too simple to say that, you know, all corporations cannot have entrepreneurs inside. I don't think it's as simple as that because there's a lot of, you know, corporations right now who actually, you know, are pushing the envelope when it comes to, you know, agile development, when it comes to CVC, when it comes to entrepreneurship, you know, at large. Um, so there is definitely that talent. What we do look for, though, is a incentive model, collaboration model with those entrepreneurs, which is similar, if not the same, to how we incentivize our venture founders. Yeah. So what doesn't really work is that you have a co-founding team, for example, of an external entrepreneur 
and an internal entrepreneur, and they're incentivized differently. Because then, as a co-founding team, well, you're going to take different decisions and you will end up having, you know, split votes, essentially, on, on, on how to go forward. Yeah, makes sense. So diving a bit deeper into maybe the granularities of, of corporate venture building, mm. before we really go into the details, maybe let's start with a bit of a, a definition because I also see many different models out there. Mm -hmm. So it would be interesting to understand what, what does corporate venture building mean to you and mm -hmm. how does that differ from corporate venture capital, accelerators, and all the other things that are also out oh, there? Okay, there's a lot of questions there. But look, corporate venture building for us, goes back to a very simple principle, which is we leverage assets, capabilities, resources of large organizations. And by doing that, we create a competitive advantage to build amazing, in our case, technology companies. Yeah. That is what corporate venture building is. We build new ventures with and for large organizations. What is important, I think, to understand is that This is different than traditional, quote-unquote, venture building. There's a lot of venture builders out there who are doing amazing work, but they take the pure VC portfolio angle, I would say. So they get good talent, great talent, and great ideas in the room and take them to a programmatic approach of how to build a business, which is actually, in this day and age, relatively well-documented. I mean, yeah. methodologies like you know Lean and Agile and what have you help to build successful ventures. There's no you know, proven recipe, but at least, you know, there is a best in class type, you know, methodology that you can use as a starting point, because in, in reality, obviously, <laughs> life always looks different than the textbook. Um, so that is what a venture builder does. A corporate venture builder does the same thing. So we do all of this, but add a corporate mandate to it, a mandate that allows us to work with, you know, the assets, the brand, the capital, and what have you of the corporation. But equally, That mandate is rooted in in strategy, an overall corporate strategy. And that is very important to understand. Corporate strategy, as we know it, is changing. The conversations in the boardrooms of you know, the top 5,000, 10,000 you know, companies around the world is, is very different than 10 years ago. Yeah. Because what we see is that the ecosystems are emerging. So as a venture builder, we do all of this. What is important is that we do this in collaboration with the corporation. What that means is that the mandate that we have is not just one uh, that allows us to deploy their large assets, but equally it comes with a demand to understand the corporate strategy. Yeah. And corporate strategy is changing. Where, what, 20 years ago, up to 20 years ago, really the name of the game was how can we efficiently and effectively push new products through our pipe to our consumer. We are now thinking more and more in platforms, right? the emergence of platforms and therefore the emergence of ecosystems. I mean, we cannot not notice that. And uh, boardrooms therefore need to rethink on what their game is, what their corporate uh, play is. And uh, that means that they need to start thinking about how they can unlock their assets, basically, in new ways. Yeah? How can they use the data that they have? How can they use the client relationships that they have? How can they use you know, the capital, the, the regulatory advantage that they have in novel ways? So yeah. how can they serve their clients, existing clients, 
in new ways by basically, you know, creating value on new market needs that they have identified. And that's exactly what um, digital native companies do. Uh, think of an Amazon, think of a Pingang, think of a Tencent and what have you, Grab. You know, they offer multiple services to consumers with whom they have a deep uh, relationship using technology. Yeah. And, and uh, that is definitely creating a competitive uh, pressure on a lot of the corporations. And this is obvious, this is um, oftentimes the, the starting point for, well, for future labs to, to engage with these, uh, these corporations. Um, yeah. Help us to basically rethink what our role is help us to rethink in which industry we're playing. I mean, boundaries between industries are disappearing, yeah? So what is Grab? I mean, are they a taxi app? Are they an insurance? Are they, you know, a wallet? What, what, I mean, so these definitions, yeah, traditional structures are disappearing. So in a corporate boardroom, you need to rethink your, your answer to that. And one of the answers is let's build new ventures yeah. on top of those assets, yeah, so that we can basically start to build, control, own our own ecosystem. Yeah. So the way I look at it, or a metaphor I oftentimes use, is one where you have the castle that you want to protect, and typically, you know, the strategy is one of building higher towers and deeper moats and what have you to protect, you know, the cash machine, which you can still do. And a lot of I think innovation at the core is actually to do just that. Yeah, protect what you have and develop it. You know, modernize it, but. Ecosystem thinking is really one where you say, let's build outposts. Yeah. Let's expand our geography. Let's not just look at, you know, our castle, our cash cow, but let's, let's build new outposts so that we have a better view of what is happening, you know, around us, the terrain, and that we basically start to collaborate with other people in the terrain as well. Yeah. And that's exactly, you know, what we do through building these uh, corporate ventures. So does that mean that every corporate who is today a vertical specialist has to essentially take all these assets and become a horizontal platform for new ideas and value streams to emerge in other verticals that they're not yet serving. Mm -hmm. Should all corporations do that? No, I don't think you can make such a claim. Should all corporates think about whether they should do that? Probably yes. And you do see that this is actually happening. Yeah, If you kind of look at you know, proliferation or adoption uh, of, you know, corporate venturing strategies. You see that right now, if you look at top 5,000 around the world, one out of five, one out of four actually of large corporations are adopting some sort of an, you know, corporate venturing strategy where they build new ventures, uh, essentially. And I mean, once you go to, you know, 20, 25% adoption rates, you can expect something to go mainstream. Yeah. And that is what I what I do anticipate that in the next five to ten years we will see that most large corporations will have uh, some answer to corporate venturing, where they might you know build this internal capability in house, although that's really you know not given to a lot of people to do that effectively, because of the reasons that I mentioned that you need to go through cultural change and you know change your risk appetite and your capital cost and, and what have you, or you know outsource uh, partner. With uh, with organizations like ours, and that that is obviously you know the the expectation that that we have and and the trend that we are building on. Right. So how does corporate venture building stand in relation to corporate venture capital, to startup collaborations? There's a whole host of different innovation plays that mm -hmm. companies are doing with the outside, not only inside. 
Is it competing for resources? Is it an addition? How do you see that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They sit on a spectrum, if you compare that. Earlier on, you asked, like, what is the difference between, you know, an accelerator and new venture building? I think accelerators go back a little bit in time. I mean, I'm going to ignore the ones which were accelerators in name only, where uh, it was just a shiny nameplate and some, you know, nice foosball tables and beanbags. The good innovation theater. The good innovation theater, that's right. So I'm going to ignore those. But even then, you see that in a lot of cases, uh, accelerators have been, I would say, a modern take on a procurement process, yeah, where you know the standing organization is looking to improve or digitize you know, a part of their business. Example that comes to mind, a financial institution, they have a credit card application process and they want to digitize it, either the user experience or the credit scoring. They would, you know, pull in a few startups, um, good startups, you know, who have great product into their accelerators and basically work with those, uh, with those companies. And the cynical me would then say, either they will say, oh, great idea. Why don't we do this ourselves? Or they will, you know, use basically this experience to, you know, strike a good deal with that scale up. Yeah. So that I think is, is, a, you know, a bit of the, the old model which is very much targeted towards the innovation at the core, right? Strengthening that castle, you know, uh, yeah. that, I, that I talked about. Compare and contrast is with the kind of ventures that we're building, which are more horizon three, you know, disruptive, transformational, if you want, ventures that we're looking to build, who all have, and this is a bold claim, but the potential to become as big as the corporate itself. So that's bold, that's moonshot, that's shooting for the stars. But that is the very mindset that you need to have if you work in a high-risk environment. Because you know a lot of the ventures of the you know, ideas that you're going to launch are not going to survive. Yeah? Accepting that, building that into your model and financing this in the right way is what is very different you know, to running an accelerator. Yeah? So we bring the VC logic into a large corporate by building ventures. By the way, we never built just one venture. We always built portfolios. Otherwise, I mean, a portfolio of one is not a portfolio and you tend to hold on and you tend to overstay, which was one of my earlier points. Yeah, so building a portfolio of, you know, five, six ventures minimum will allow you to kind of, you know, cut and ask yourself the right questions uh, along the process. Yeah, and so that is really a VC mentality. The VC doesn't see... Uh, any progress or, you know, the risk. I mean, there's no traction and, and there's no product market fit and what have you. I mean, a VC is going to pull the plug and double down on, on the rest of their portfolio companies. That's that's just how it works. Um, so we bring that logic in, in into the corporation. Um, and sometimes, indeed, corporations might have their own CVC already, the corporate venture capital, their own internal fund. Right. But a fund is... Um, well, its mandate typically is, is one to invest into existing companies, right? So it's no different in terms of how it deploys its capital, no different from a VC of which the LPs, the, you know, the, the LPs and the fund, the limited partners in the fund are independent. Yeah. And what that means is that they're competing with other VCs to find, you know, good investment opportunities. They might not be as well equipped. And they also have to deal with, CVCs have to deal with this kind of double mandate typically, which is financial on the one hand side, so financial returns, 
and strategic investments on the other side. And, and there is a bit of a trade-off, right? And it's very difficult to align that financial objective with that strategic objective, yeah? So that's, I think, one problem with CVC. Not to say that there's no place. I think, it, there, I mean, CVC is a great model, you know, for corporations who are looking to innovate and, and push the envelope. And it works in complement, actually, with what we're doing, which is the new venture building. New venture building, if you sponsor it early on as a large corporation, you basically have an opportunity to get in at a much lower valuation than if you were to buy a stake later on through your CVC. Right. Yeah, so that is one of the main differences. and. Secondly, I would say that because we use the assets and the resources, it's per definition or per design rather compatible, compatible with the rest of the organization, right? If you use customer data of a telco, let's say, and, and we built a novel, a novel product that we know, you know, has market traction um, using, you know, that customer access of that particular telco, then it's proven, you know, that an integration, if you want, or, or bolt on onto their overall strategic plan is going to be beneficial. Yeah? Right. And so structuring that long-term relationship, structuring that deal and basically providing uh, the corporate an, an opportunity to, well, outsource a part of that risk in, of the early stages um, and uh, yet present them with an option to kind of acquire the entire, uh, the entire business if it, if it turns out to be a strategic asset. That, that, um, that, that is what we do at, at, uh, at uh, Future Labs. Yeah, so we very much believe in uh, the best owner principle. Enterprises are good in managing enterprises. Enterprises are not good in managing startups. Yeah, startup founders and venture builders are good in managing startups. Yeah, so we need to really carefully think about how ownership is structured over the life stages. Yeah, over over the the life cycle of a startup. And that is some yeah, business model design that we've worked on hard in the last two years uh, to make that work. And actually, yeah, there's quite attractive returns and, and incentives for all the parties involved. Yeah. So I'm very curious because that's often a high point of contention. What's the magic number on the cap table for how much the corporate should own, how much the entrepreneur should own, that the incentives are really aligned, that they will perseveres through tough times, but the corporate can still say, yes, this made sense for us. Mm -hmm. What does that look like? What you want is that the, the founders of the business have majority in the early stages. And this is really how we set up our, our cap table. Now, you don't need to look at a cap table just here today. Now, you can make an agreement on how future cap tables are going to look like, depending on you know, certain milestones you're going to reach. And that is really, you know, part of the secret sauce as we've, we've developed it. Yeah, so if you present a, a trajectory and agree on a trajectory on which or along which the, the corporation, you know, can acquire the entire business and you kind of agree on, you know, what the heads of terms are of such an, um, such an acquisition, then usually you can find uh, yeah, quite easily even, I would say, an, uh, an agreement and alignment between the different parties. So earlier you said you're looking to build ventures that have the potential to become as big as the corporate that they're coming out of, considering that large corporations easily have valuations in the tens or hundreds of billions of dollars. That's a big goal. Do you actually somehow make that a criteria in your selection process of the problem space or of uh, any of the different variables uh, along the way? Yes, we look As an investor, we look for, you know, scalability. We look for market size. We look at, you know, what is the size of the price? Essentially, that is important, especially 
if you are building for a corporation, right, who wants to have efficiency or wants to create efficiency on, on capital deployed. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you, you definitely need to look at that. Uh, but again, there's no guarantee. I mean, I wish there was, but there's no guarantee on saying, wow, this is going to be, you know, $10 billion company. That, that's not possible. Yeah. Are there examples of where, you know, corporate venture building has gone incredibly well? Absolutely. Let me just speak, you know, from, from one of the ventures that we know quite well. Um, my co-founder, Mario Aquino, has actually built Moody's Analytics. So he started an analytics company that was acquired by Moody's, the, you know, then uh, rating agency. And if you look at that growth trajectory and its current size, it represents about, you know, 50% of the market cap of Moody's. Yeah. And uh, obviously that's a process of a decade or more. But yeah, with the technology uh, revolution ongoing, and, and really we're just at the start of that evolution revolution, I anticipate that we will see more and more of those stories where, you know, companies might be successful, might be lucky, I don't know which uh, word to use here, or might completely be, you know, eradicated um, because they have not found an answer to, you know, this digitization and have failed to either digitize their core fast enough or have uh, not built any portfolio or not a single venture that basically kind of compensates the decline and that allows them to basically reinvent themselves. Yeah, so that, yeah. that's really the, uh, the name of the game. As we're already on the topic of uh, examples, since you said earlier, one out of four corporates are now engaged in venture building. Are there any names globally where you would say, hey, these guys are doing it really well. That's like a model that, that works. This is a reference case for, for others to follow. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting because I see two, broadly speaking, two categories of, you know, corporates who are engaged in corporate venturing. Some of them actually have been doing it for years, if not decades, and they just do it as part of their you know, day-to-day -day business and they won't necessarily, you know, communicate because they know it's part of their secret sauce. Um, so it's not my job then to do this. And there's others where I, who I think are more public and they have all reason to do that. And they're globally, you know, recognized as, as innovation leaders. And I mean, we were fortunate to work with one of them, uh, which is ING, for example, the bank, who has not only successfully managed to you know, introduce agile thinking and, you know, a lot of the contemporary innovation theories into their standing organization, into their core organization, but equally have, you know, for many years now developed, you know, venture building labs. And um, yeah, we ran one of them in the trade and, and, and logistics space uh, for them. Yeah. And there's quite a lot of public information that they share. Yeah. So in, in the public sphere, but I think this doesn't go unnoticed by, you know, shareholders and, and investors and regulators and peers, uh, to be honest. Yeah. And um, yeah, what comes out of this, I mean, including some of the ventures uh, we have signed for is great because after, you know, 12, 14 months, you can see how actually the investments that you've made into a portfolio, into a lab starts to pay itself back. Yeah. So that's already the business case, uh, if you want. And then obviously with the growth trajectory that we see, with some of these ventures now, we're well on our way to, well, maybe not yet to have visibility of becoming as big as ING, <laughs> but at least, you know, building a business which is worth, you know, tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. And, and yeah. not just the, the money side of it, but really that has a place in that ecosystem that I, that I explained earlier on, where there's an additional strategic benefit of ING or, or you know, any of our other corporate uh, partners to be 
a strategic shareholder and contributing to the growth of that venture, but equally benefiting from the growth of that venture because, you know, the kind of control mechanisms and insights you get into the market, uh, into that value space in which you've been building your venture, that dramatically increases. Do you see a geographic difference in the maturity in terms of thinking about and and acting on this whole venture building sort of model between the US, Europe, Asia, Southeast Asia? It's largely actually a global trend that we see. Now, I do feel more qualified to talk about Southeast Asia and and Europe and, and perhaps Middle East as these are our, you know, the regions in which we operate. I mean, Singapore is definitely a hotbed for everything corporate innovation. There is a very active push, by the way, by the Singaporean government to make Singapore the center for corporate innovation you know, around the world, yeah. which is interesting because we see that some of the European MNCs, even American MNCs, really set up their efforts around corporate venture building and, and the labs and what have you here, uh, here in Singapore. So it's definitely a good place for us to to be here and to be headquartered in uh, in the little red dot. But uh, equally, I see a lot of activity in the region here in in, in Southeast Asia. You know, in in, in Kuala Lumpur, in, in Jakarta, in Bangkok is where we currently have you know our engagements, where we have our partners, uh, where labs and you know, portfolios of ventures, uh, for that matter, are being built. So I think the whole region is definitely you know fast tracking. And I think this is the combination of having large organizations, large corporates, who actually have a a lot of assets and a lot of, I mean, who control a broad spectrum of sectors, you know, the family conglomerates, for example, you know, in some of the countries here, they have, you know, an enormous reach, but they don't have, not typically, a lot of digital products. Yeah. And that combination with the right leadership is, it really leads to creating an opportunity to build ecosystems, right? And, and you see the first successes happening there. And again, the, the mandates and opportunities that we are involved in are a confirmation of that, yeah. Europe too, you see that the pressure of, you know, actually investors, especially institutional investors is increasing in Europe where some of the old traditional, you know, energy companies and telcos and, you know, media companies really start to experience the pressure of this this digital agenda, and even look at Asia and the US, but I would say, you know, even more Asia for what this ecosystem thinking might bring them, right? Because the the, the speed of change here, the digital adoption here, obviously allows for shorter learning cycles here than I would say in in the more, well, longer developed countries, you know, in Europe and and the US. Yeah. Yeah. So earlier you said that corporate ventures are startups on steroids. What does that mean? I think as a, as a startup founder, especially a first-time founder, you really have to figure everything out. You have a you know a half-baked idea that you want to go and test in the market. You don't know where your market is. You don't know how to test it. You might typically not have you know the money to do that or to do that fast. So you have to figure everything out. Therefore, you run into a lot of impediments, there's a lot of kind of obstacles that you need to overcome, which is exactly one of the reasons why, you know, the probabilities of, of failure are, are so high. I mean, you need to fail, but if you need to fail, you want to fail fast. Right. And creating that fast feedback loop is one of the functions that an, a venture builder has. 
let's you know ring fence nicely what assumptions you want to test when in which order right so you do you for example and this is a classic mistake you know that entrepreneurs go through i mean unexperienced entrepreneurs and i would say corporates perhaps even more but that is that they they build a solution without having tested the market yeah yep. and they conceive on the back of a lot of assumptions that this is what the market will buy and this is what their consumers are looking for and then they bring it to market and 7 out of 10 i believe that's the number uh, on average of those products fail right that is not what you want for any venture that is not what you want as a corporate venture right so providing the right tools providing the mentors providing the techniques providing the market to speak to yeah if you build a b2b company right like in the shipping let me go back to my example and you want to speak to uh, the cfos of a shipping company right if you don't have inroads into that industry if you don't have you know the cfos or the, their offices on in your rolodex it's going to be very hard you know for you to have access to it yeah. all those obstacles is what we clear yeah all these impediments is what we take away so we want you to you know build as fast as possible we provide you with the right market access we provide you with the right talent mentors i mean not just mentors but really senior advisors access to regulators access to the cfo of you know a large ship liner and so on and so forth and that is the, the steroid injection almost that that we give and yes you might fall flat right because the, that doesn't necessarily you know increase well it inc- two things happen it increases the probability of success but if it's bound to fail you will know much faster that there's no traction yeah and that goes back to this whole notion of capital efficiency that corporates are looking for right then obviously one of the things you you highlighted is that uh, corporate ventures can really leverage the assets that a corporation has how does that have to be set up and what kind of also maybe political landscape we have to navigate in order to really gain access and leverage those assets mm-hmm. it's not easy and there's not a one way answer um but one of the things that definitely needs to happen and quite early on is senior management buy in the mandates we look to have need to come from the executive board otherwise this is an exercise on paper that can happen somewhere you know in the corner of the bank that's fine but if you really want to work you know with for example the client relationships you need to have the buy in of the relationship managers exactly the relationship managers therefore need to understand why they should do that might have to be incentivized for that need to understand what the wider strategy is and so on and so forth so you can only really achieve that when there is an a senior buy in one and two there is an educational aspect to all of it as well where in the beginning just to stick to the example of relationship managers for example we see that there is a certain aversion a certain pushback on like why would i bring something which is unproven to my you know clients i mean with the right level of you know education and training and storytelling and what have you you can actually turn around that narrative and present it in a way where you're going to bring something novel and fresh and crisp to your clients who might be you know positively surprised all of a sudden that that you come with a novel idea which is not just you know to talk about the latest transaction or you know how can we make more money together and yeah you need to kind of help people to see that to understand that to help to script the narrative these are you know some of the early successes you need to try and create and a very public kind of endorsement i think by the senior leadership not just for the successes because that's great we can all do that but equally to the failures right so if a venture uh, gets killed in the process 
you want almost literally, you know, the CEO of the large corporation to applaud and say, guys, we've tried, you know, and I'm pleased that, you know, we failed and we failed so fast because we learned something, right? And we know that this is not the answer. Yeah. So that, yeah, that cultural change is definitely important. Now we can't, I mean, we're not looking to build or to transform necessarily the core business, right? So it, it, our job within Future Labs, at least, is not one of digital transformation and changing the entire culture of the company. I, I mean, that is necessary, but that's a very long cycle, typically. Yeah. We don't have the time and patience to do that. We don't necessarily have, you know, the teams to do that. We have entrepreneurs who want to build, you know, their own, own independent, you know, vehicles. Huh? So we're not turning around to big ship. We're trying to build, you know, smaller boats and... Um, speedboats, duckboats that will show the way to the large organization in which direction to go over the long term. Right. In terms of that mindset shift, at least at the very top, when you say the CEO should be applauding the failure, we often talk about embracing failure, failing fast, reframing failure as learning. What do you see in the corporate landscape in terms of that mindset shift at the very top? Is that really happening? My short answer is yes. Is it really happening with everybody across the board? No. I mentioned one out of five corporations. I think it's one out of five where we feel that, you know, these, these conversations go somewhere. One out of five, you know, the conversations that we have is with corporations who are ready. And it's a matter of engaging with the corporate partner who is ready. Right. Uh, trying to, you know, take them through five years cycle of trying to convince them that this is necessary is probably, well, not the best use uh, of our time. We rather build, you know, new ventures and actually, you know, choose to execute. We're operators, we're executors. So that, that's how we create value. But yes, I do think that general awareness and readiness is increasing amongst the uh, corporate executives. So let's demystify the process itself a little bit. For many people in corporations, startups are still something very far away, something that looks very risky. Sometimes from the outside can look a bit random and chaotic, but obviously there is a method to the madness. What does your method look like? Mm -hmm. Risky, is it risky? Of course there's risk, but what is risk? It's really having an understanding of what is uncertain, right? So there's a difference between uncertainty and risk. Risk you can manage, and that is what we bring to the corporation, right? So it's, um, we propose a stage-gated process which allows corporations as an investor to have quite some visibility into what they can expect from a venture and the process of you know, venture building and who will give them a number of, call it KPIs, if you want to use the co corporate speak, but basically we formulate a number of, of expectations against which they can uh, track uh, the progress of the venture and which are then used to release more money, right? So the way we structure it is very much like, you know, when a venture would go and raise money, you know, pre-seed, seed, series A. I mean, once you're past series A, then typically you get into territory that, you know, most people in a large organization would understand easily yeah. because it's about, you know, efficiency and scale. But yeah, it's a stage-gated process where, where basically at every, at every stage gate, we sit down, you know, with the investment uh, committee, which is the corporate uh, partner and, and ourselves, you know, the people who are basically committing all the resources 
to say yay or nay, you know, let's uh, let's continue or let's pull the plug because we're not getting anywhere. And so that's already your first risk mitigation mechanism you have. Uh, and so that means that going back to my earlier point on business uh, cases, you don't necessarily as a corporation need to commit hundreds or tens even of millions of dollars to a project that you don't know what it's going to give as a return. Yeah. It's good to kind of, you know, reserve an envelope for investments, but uh, that doesn't mean that you need to, you know, spend all of it or sign the check. Um, oh, there's a lot of control mechanisms there. And uh, there's a methodology, you know, underlying it, which gives some visibility into how we conduct the experiments, essentially, because that's what it is. You know, you formulate a set of, uh, of assumptions that you want to go out and test in the market. You want to go and test it in the market yourself. You don't want to engage in a market survey company or something like that. You really, you know, if, if you build something for the shipping industry, well, <laughs> I want to venture founders to take their backpack and their sleeping bag and go and sleep on a ship. You know, that, right. that's how you get the information. And having that first line of intelligence on the market is really, you know, something which is invaluable and which uh, very quickly in our experience manages to kind of take the risk out of uh, out of an early venture or at least keeps everybody around the table real to say like, wow, we thought we had something, but really there's nothing. Yeah? So stage-gated process, methodology and drip funding, that's basically, um, that's basically the three mechanisms we use in order to, to manage that process with the corporates. How do you think about outside validation, both in terms of having potentially outsiders sitting on that investment committee that might bring in the voice outside of the corporate, but then also pulling in outside funding uh, at an early stage to say, okay, there is actually something there because somebody outside of our walls believes in it as well. Mm -hmm. Very welcome. We encourage that and more of our corporate partners than not are actually looking for that validation as well. I would say pre-Series A, it's more, you know, market validation. It's more, you know, the feedback you get from the market, from the experts, that matters, right? It's it's less, you know, the capital that matters at that point. But we, I mean, all our ventures have to have subject matter expertise. Well, if not in the founders, I mean, typically with the founders already, but, you know, like really senior people on the advisory boards and on the investment committee. Yeah. That's one. And then once you go into um, Series A, we, we typically open up the capital to professional, you know, investors, to venture capitalists, family offices, and what have you, who will then have uh, the opportunity to essentially co-invest a large, uh, uh, alongside a large uh, corporation and future labs in, into those ventures, which is then obviously in a validation in terms of, well, the potential of the venture. And with that closely uh, related, obviously, the, the actual valuation of that venture too. I'm wondering in context of corporate venture building and your process, how do you think about pivoting? Because earlier you said there's a very fine balance between cutting too early, cutting too late. Maybe it's almost more of an art than a science. Do you actually encourage uh, founders to find new ways and pivot? Are there mm -hmm. certain criteria that you have for that? Mm -hmm. You can have a dot on the horizon and you can have a set of assumptions, but you know As a founder and as an investor, you're setting yourself up for a road which is unknown. And so it's going to be meandering. And, and I can guarantee you it never pans out like you have it in mind. Um, so, yes, you need to pivot. Then the question is, how do you de define a pivot, really? I think sometimes we tr 
we, as in you know, a general statement, one tries too hard to pivot, but actually they should just start over and start with a new set of assumptions. And I think that helps to kind of create that clarity to say, look, this is a dead end, guys. Let's let's pull the funding plug. But we have a great team. We still have funding left. We still have a market and we have identified a new market opportunity. Let's not just pivot, but let's, you know, go back to square one and start over. Yeah. yeah. So we kill ideas. We don't kill people. Uh, that's uh, that's really the idea. That's good to hear. Uh, yes, uh, reassuring, isn't it? <laughs> and um, yeah, managing that process is not trivial. We have, as I said, our own internal kind of metrics and expectations in terms of what we want to see at a given stage yeah, after running, conducting a number of set of experiments. And if that doesn't work, then we know we need to, you know, pivot. And if then the next you know, set of assumptions is also not met, then we know that probably pivoting is not going to bring us any closer. Yeah. But yeah, it's a, it's a delicate balance. It, I don't think it is like, an, it's on a case-by-case basis, but cutting too early is a problem. Overstaying is perhaps even a bigger problem, I think. But it can't be the case that you just yeah, try something and say, nah, didn't work. We need to know and the corporate partner needs to understand that pivoting, you know, iterating is an essential part of the process. Actually, we've never really had that problem. I think it, the tricky ones are the pivots that are requested by the corporate partner. Okay. We've seen that too. Yeah. Where there's an initial idea and there's some traction and then, you know, one of the managers in the standing organization gets wind of it and they say, oh, this is great. I could actually bolt this on onto, you know, my portfolio or my, you know, I don't know, the scope of responsibilities and, and what have you. How about we do this, right? And then there's a kind of a pressure that gets added to that venture to expand its scope or to build something which is then more aligned with the standing business and what have you. And so, well, if you don't manage that process early on and, you know, in a very determined way, what you might end up with is that early successes really get incorporated too quickly into into you know the standing organization and they kind of get absorbed you know and and yeah it's like a, a little puppy that you keep too close and you cuddle it to death that's basically what can happen and um, i mean yeah we've seen that happening i think our model and kind of the you know the relationship structure that we have um the portfolio dynamics that we have don't allow for that but it is always a pressure or, uh, I mean, the probability of something like that happening is real, actually. Yeah. yeah. Coming back to Future Labs, maybe talking a bit about the future of Future Labs. Mm. Your organization is still fairly young, but you've already had quite significant successes in setting up corporate venture labs and also built a few interesting ventures. Mm -hmm. But I understand at the beginning, the model was more advisory with a bit of a bolt on of a VC. Now you see yourself more as a, a VC with added advisory. Why that shift in focus mm. and setup? Mm. We were a startup in our own right, obviously, and, and we still are, you know, a growth com as a growth company, we're still looking, you know, for what is really our model. But I think we initially had our first mandates very much on the, on the strategic side, like understanding, you know, what those ecosystem ventures look like, what type of bets, you know, that large corporations could make. I mean, because of our backgrounds, we feel quite, you know, comfortable, you know, having these conversations and structuring basically the entire corporate venturing setup, yeah. which is then very close to an advisory mandate, you know, if you see what I'm saying. However, at heart, we are entrepreneurs, we're builders, and we actually look to have 
our upside in equity. We'd like to benefit from the successes that we build, and we want to sit at the same side of the table as our corporate partner. Yeah? Um, so if you take that last comment to the next level, then you basically need to think as a VC because you invest your capital. And if you invest it wrongly, you lose it. If you invest it well, you I mean, you might have a potentially big return. And so what we find is that all the methods, techniques, approaches that we have developed over the last you know couple of years, actually were much more in line with the mindset and the dynamics that a VC has. And so we model our collaboration much more like an uh, like a VC would structure their term sheet yeah. than what an you know an, an advisor would structure their well supplier client contract uh, essentially. So what are your next steps? How do you plan to grow in the next years? I mean, the first year we kind of made a choice not to try and grow too fast because we wanted to learn, you know, about about our own model and kind of the feedback that we would get from the market at large and learning how to scale that and what have you. Uh, 2019, just last year, has been one in which we have dramatically scaled up our well size of of the business and have now yeah half a dozen you know venture labs in in play. We anticipate to uh, continue our growth in the next few years, but there's a lot of depth and a lot of need in in the market here in uh, Southeast Asia. So we obviously want to establish our footprint first here. But there is definitely opportunity and active calling, you know, from the Western front, let's say, yeah. uh, from, you know, I mean, Middle East and then uh, Europe. And uh, we have now a model that we believe can scale and scale quite quickly. Talent, obviously, is a key component of what we do. Capital comes next. And uh, we've, we're in a good shape, basically, to fuel that growth in, in the next few years. And are confident that, you know, Future Labs is going to be a reference name when it comes to corporate venturing. That's our ambition. We're essentially building a portfolio of ventures, corporate ventures, right? So there's not just, you know, the incubation phase, but there's a scaling phase yep. that is going to uh, knock in quite soon. And we're building our capabilities there to do that. Scaling is actually, you know, where we originally, you know, started and where our core competences are of, of the founding team as well. Innovation is great. Disruption is great. But really, value is only created when you do things at scale. And that has been, you know, one of the initial premises, ideas, if you want, of Future Labs. So obviously, now we start to enter into the scaling of our own business, but equally scaling, you know, the ventures that we have in portfolio. And uh, yeah, that means that I think our footprint is going to grow exponentially in, in the next uh, two, three years out. What about the outlook on the corporate venture building system in general? You already said earlier, you predicted we'll go mainstream, not at uh, one out of five, one out of four, already engaging in it. What about the model? Do you see that changing in any mm. way? I think there's going to be different flavors. I don't think there is going to be just one model, not necessarily. I mean, I and mean, if there's one, then <laughs> I would hope it's, uh, you know, the Future Labs model. But look, I think there might be corporations who feel like they want to learn and then insource the whole thing, I think. Yeah. And then probably... Will choose to you know work with advisory uh, companies, and that's okay. That's fine. I have my you know reservations uh, about the long term type you know survival of of these uh, type of initiatives, uh, obviously. Uh, but look, there's going to be a place for the advisors. There's going to be a place, I think, for independent venture builders uh, who basically build great ventures and who want to have a relationship with corporations, which is 
I think nothing more than a financial relationship in that, you know, corporations like any other institutional investor will provide them with capital. Uh, but the whole strategy agenda, the whole ecosystem thinking, you know, the accessibility or unlocking the value of the assets is not going to be part of that. So for a corporation who just wants to beef up a bit of their financial returns, that might become an asset class, yeah, which is, I mean, not bad. And then obviously, you know, there's different flavors in the middle in the, in the place where we play, where people might, uh, you know, be closer to the advisory model versus closer to, you know, the equity sharing uh, model. Yeah. So yeah. I think it's a bit of a toggle in between and different organizations uh, are playing in the market. And yeah, we all have our different assumptions and our different DNA. And I welcome that because together we can really build, I think, a new market, if you want, and support a fundamental trend in what I think uh, will shape the corporations, the large organizations of the future. For the three and four corporations who are not yet working on their own venture building initiatives, what would be the top three criteria that they should think about where you say, if those are in place, you're ready to actually engage. And if those are not in place, maybe you have to do some work internally first. More than capability, I think it's willingness. A lot of the capabilities we bring, having the open mind, having the yeah, willingness to, to do an experiment and to basically commit a bit of money And it doesn't need to be hundreds of millions of dollars, right? But a relatively small envelope of money and say, look, we are ready for a professional venture builder, you know, with a track record to, you know, experiment with this and to show what you can do and to, you know, introduce us to what this future might look like. That I think is what is needed. So it's mindset with the willingness of basically a senior management team to kind of put themselves out there and say, look, we need to think about, you know, the future. Yes, we need to digitize, you know, our own core business. I'm never claiming that, you know, corporations shouldn't do that, right? right? But next to that, let's not be blind to, you know, what is happening around us because we don't want to be disrupted and one day wake up and realize actually that our core business can be taken down, you know, in a matter of one year. And there are examples. I mean, lifetime of corporations is shortening, Right. I mean, the classic examples are the Codex and the Nokia's, you know, of this world. If you kind of, you know, miss a trend, then you can be eradicated quite quickly. And yes, you can put all efforts on digitizing your core, but equally, you know, why not send out, you know, a few entrepreneurs on your behalf and go and explore what else can be done? We cannot assume as a corporation that the best talent you know, sits necessarily with us, you know, you want to have people who experiment and go out and take risks and you need to be ready as a corporate um, executive to kind of bring these people who might be even cultural misfits, you know, for your organization, but to bring them a bit under your wing and see what happens and be open for experimentation. Right. So corporate venture building is now an important part of any corporate innovation strategy, essentially building Startups on steroids, leveraging the assets of the corporate, launching new ships into the market that have the potential to become as big as the core and be the future of the corporation. Joachim, thank you very much for your time. It's been a fascinating conversation. Not at all. It has been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Lost in Transformation with our host Sebastian from Ming Labs. If you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe to our channel and leave us a review on iTunes. Join us next time for another episode of our podcast. Thank you.